0: PART 3 SECTION 2 CHAPTER 17 PART A OF ORGANIC EVOLUTION This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Larry Wilson. ORGANIC EVOLUTION BY RICHARD SWAN LULL CHAPTER 17 PART A PARASITISM AND DEGENERACY creatures which are not free-living but depend upon others directly for their food are extremely numerous and of these the ones bearing the ignoble relationship of parasite to host number according to one authority Eccles, more than half of all the animal creation hence as a means of adaptation for survival parasitism must be looked upon as a remarkably successful device although as we shall see the resultant evolution is one of retrogression and ends in greater or less degeneracy according to the degree of parasitism and the relative rank of the animal at the beginning of its degenerating career. CLASSIFICATION OF PARASITES Aside from their natural taxonomic rank in the animal or plant kingdom, parasites may be divided bionomically into the following groups temporary parasites are the creatures which like many insects are parasitic during but a portion of their life and free living at other times in some cases it is the adolescent which has become parasitic this is true of the parasitic hymenoptera whose eggs are laid by being thrust by means of a special device ovipositor into the body of another insect a caterpillar for instance within which the entire larval state is passed The parasite feeding as a rule on the fat body or other non-vital portions of its host. When its larval time is fulfilled, the parasite emerges through the body wall, spins a tiny cocoon on the outside of its host within which it pupates, and finally emerges as an adult fly of free life and habits totally distinct from those of its young. Another instance of a temporary parasite is the ordinary dog or cat flea this time parasitic as an adult, living its adolescent life in the cracks of the floor, where sufficient organic material is usually found to give it sustenance. Those whose parasitic career embraces the adult condition, as in this instance, show greater degeneracy than those parasitic as young, for the higher the animal is, the greater the fall, and an adult has generally attained a loftier plane of development than its young. Permanent parasites are such as have practically no free stage in their career, like the dreaded trichina worm to be described later on. This creature is found in in the flesh of one host and passes to the next through the latter, having eaten of the first. And normally an indefinite number of generations may live their lives without ever being in the outer air. Permanent parasites are more frequently found among lower forms and always require a succession of similar hosts or a blood-sucking alternative host, whereas the greater number of higher parasites are temporary. Faculative parasites is a term applied to the more adaptable sorts, which, lacking their normal host, may turn to another or even exist as free-living forms. Many parasites are faculative, although in some cases the new host may be one closely related to the old. Obligate parasites, on the other hand, are the less adaptable sorts and require a definite host or succession of hosts. It is questionable whether very many parasites are strictly obligate in the sense of requiring an invariable species. Certain tapeworms seem to be such. However, the human tapeworm, Tinius solium, being derived from the flesh of the swine, while T. saginata has for its alternate host the domestic cattle. The tuberculosis organism, on the other hand, is faculative, with, unfortunately, a rather wide range of hosts. External Parasites Yet another grouping of parasites is according to whether they confine their depredations to the outside of their host, that is, are external or ectoparasites, such as the flea, of which we spoke, or are parasitic within the interior of the host external parasites which are largely arthropods may become degenerate but are rarely of such vital moment to the host in themselves it is only when they in turn are parasitized and are thus the carriers of disease that they become real menace internal parasites or endoparasites are many and while a large number of them have retained the primitive simplicity Of their free-living ancestors, many of those which are zoologically high in the scale of life show a very marked degeneracy which is, in some cases, extreme. Many protozoa, bacteria of disease, and especially worms of various sorts are included under this head. The effect of parasitism upon the host is generally a harmful one with no compensating benefit. It does not invariably result fatally at once to the individual, but in the case of many adolescent insects, prevents their reaching the adult stage and therefore renders impossible the procreation of further generations. In preserving the balance of nature, parasitism is undoubtedly one of the strongest factors, keeping naturally prolific creatures effectively in check. There is reason to believe that parasitism has had much to do with the extinction of prehistoric races of animals, and Dr. Eccles has brought together some interesting data which bear upon this problem. He believes, and his observations are based upon extensive study of germ diseases, that apparently all animals of the present and past are infested by one or more parasites feeding upon the host and that the parasites are themselves infected by parasites, which suggests the quatrain. The little fleas which us do tease have other fleas to bite them, and these in turn have other fleas, and so ad infinitum. In the course of time all hosts become immune to the parasites, and all goes well until new migrants arrive, bringing new parasites and therefore new diseases into the area. The new disease will cause immense destruction until the native animals or the survivors of them again attain immunity. Therefore, times of renewed migration, which, as we have seen in our discussion of animal distribution, are concurrent with the formation of new migratory routes, land bridges, forest tracks, removals of old-time barriers, and so forth, should be times of disestablishment and economic disorganization. Immunity to disease does not necessarily mean immunity to the parasite, but rather that the host has become capable of enduring the parasite within its system and at the same time showing every manifestation of perfect health. Nevertheless, such an individual may be a carrier of the disease of the most insidious sort, as medical practitioners have learned to their sorrow one notable instance in point is that of the cattle infesting texas fever which has been thus graphically described by dr d e salmon he says the cattle which spread the disease are themselves apparently in good health while the cattle that become sick do not themselves disseminate the contagion again susceptible cattle might be mingled with impunity with cattle from the infected district providing this mingling occurred immediately after their arrival and did not continue longer than two or three weeks while on the other hand susceptible cattle that later in the season trespassed for even a few minutes on the pastures where the infectious cattle had been would contract a most violent form of the malady texas fever is caused by a microscopic parasite which lives within the red globules of the blood the cattle in the infected district carry this parasite permanently and are so nearly immune to its effects that they remain in good health notwithstanding its presence in their blood not so however with cattle which never before have encountered it with such animals it destroys the red corpuscles and reduces them to one-third or one-fourth the normal number an intense fever is produced and the creatures rapidly waste away and die after a sickness of one or two weeks. The East Coast fever of Africa, which is very similar, is caused by a very closely related parasite, which likewise lives in the red corpuscles of its host. Infected East Coast cattle show no ill effects, but are carriers of the disease. Non-immune cattle brought into the East Coast region are open to certain attack, and the assertion has been made that out of each hundred which are thus assailed but five on the average survive in one epidemic due to the introduction of infected animals into the transvaal fifteen thousand cattle died in trypanosomiasis sleeping sickness we have another instance of the same condition notwithstanding the fact that there may be no sick animals in the fly country of africa no horses cattle or dogs can venture even for a day into the region most of the wild animals however the buffalo kudu the wildebeest or new carry the trypanosomes in small numbers in their blood and it is from them that the tsetse fly obtained the parasite the wild animals act as a reservoir of the disease the trypanosomes seem to live in the blood of the wild animals without doing them any manifest harm But when introduced into the blood of such domestic animals as the horse, the dog, or the ox, the victims rapidly sicken and die. On the Parasite The effect of parasitism on the parasite, which may be much or little, on the part of the higher forms, at least, is invariably one of degenerative specialization. The parasite being below the standard of its free-living congeners of course simple ancestors implied little or no degeneracy on the other hand the retrogression may be profound if the parasite be one of high descent in the case of temporary parasites the alteration may not be so decided as in permanent ones but it varies with the degrees of adaptation to parasitic life parasitic organisms like sedentary forms are apt to lose their organs of locomotion and develop instead structures for attachment or adhesion such as tentacles hooks or suckers correlated always with the diminution of locomotive powers is that of the organs of special sense the only sense remaining in extreme instances being the tactile which is a primordial function of protoplasm itself the nervous system as a whole shows degeneracy There may also be a simplification of the external skeleton as in arthropods, especially if the parasite be internal. Parasitism often means reduced metabolism and a consequent reduction of the vegetative organs, such as those of respiration and circulation, and especially the alimentary canal, wherein the digestive glands are the first to disappear. For as in certain intestinal worms, notably ascaris, the organism lives virtually in predigested food, which only awaits absorption. In the tapeworms, the extreme is reached, for in them there is no trace of alimentary canal at all, the nutrient medium in which the animals live being absorbed directly through the body wall of the flattened degenerate. The reproductive organs alone suffer no diminution, but on the contrary, may become still more highly developed, especially among internal parasites. For among these in particular, the vicissitudes attending the organism during its life cycle, and especially during its migration from host to host, are great, and the fecundity must needs be proportionately increased. Hermaphroditism frequently characterizes the parasite, and in some instances, self impregnation seems to occur. Parasitic plants lose many organs, but never the blossoms, which are often of wondrous beauty, as, for instance, the orchids. Value of recapitulation. Were it not for the assumption, therefore, that the life history of the individual broadly tends to summarize the evolution of its race, and that the earlier stages of ontogeny may repeat those in phylogeny, taxonomic, that is, zoological or botanical as opposed to bionomic, classification of some parasites would be virtually impossible for example in the crab parasite sacculina we have so extreme a state of degeneracy that the sycophant is reduced to a condition not unlike that of a tumour growing on the underside of the host's abdomen dissection shows this tumour to possess nothing comparable to an alimentary canal but instead a large growth of ramifying processes like rootlets extending through every portion of the crab's anatomy even to its eyes and serving to extract nutritive juices, just as the rootlets of a plant absorb nourishment from the soil. Within the body of the parasite are a decidedly reduced nervous system and enormously developed reproductive organs. Such is sacculina, and as such its classification is impossible until its life history is revealed when its taxonomic rank is at once manifest. Of this form, Thomson says, the animal is at the nadir of parasitic degeneration but what of the life history out of the brood chamber there emerge naplius larvae with three pairs of appendages a food canal and a median eye they feed and grow and molt and pass into the second the cyprid larval stage these fix themselves just like barnacles and acorn shells by means of their first pair of feelers to the back or limbs of young crabs, finding a soft place at the base of the large bristles or settee. All but the head region is cast off. The structures within the head contract. Eyes, tendons, pigment, and the remains of the shell are all lost, and a tiny sac sinks into the interior of the crab. Eventually, it reaches the ventral surface of the abdomen, and as it approaches maturity, the cuticle of the crab softens beneath it, so that the sac-like body protrudes. It seems to live for three years, during which the growth of the crab is arrested. The reproductive organs of both the male and female crabs are destroyed. The life history of the sacculidia, up to the time of its fixation, is therefore essentially as in other barnacles, hence its inclusion with them in the order Cyripedia. and the larval stages, the Noplius and Cyprus, Are found in many other crustacea, and therefore the barnacles are included within that class. As an adult, the diagnostic crustacean features are certainly conspicuous. Absent in the sacculina, so that it may be said of them, although in a perverted sense, by their fruits ye shall know them. End of Chapter 17, Part A.